pay attention to God's word. God will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and ask for him to bless the reading and hearing of it. Oh God, we do pray that your spirit would work in us, work through your word and in us to change us, to transform us, to convert us, to draw us near to you, to make us more like Jesus, to give us the fear of the Lord, to increase our faith in Jesus. Please do these things, even today, for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. I look forward to uh, spending time with you all this afternoon. My family and I do have to leave immediately after the service for a family event, but I look forward to coming back and, and dancing uh, with you all. Well, with my wife, but with y'all. <clears throat> when you stand before your Creator on the day of judgment, what's the test by which God will judge you? What will God evaluate in you as He determines your t- eternal destination? Now, in sharing the gospel with people, you've probably found yourself telling them that Their works cannot save them. You you can't do enough good works to earn your way to heaven. But if if someone, what, what if someone were to challenge you on that point by taking you to the words of Jesus in John 5, where he says in verses 28 and 29, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. He's talking about his voice, the son of man's voice. And they will come out of the grave Those who have done good will go to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Is Jesus saying that doing good works is how we earn the resurrection of life? What's Jesus teaching there? Well, whatever he's saying, Paul appears to be teaching the same thing in today's sermon text. Again, the question is, when you stand before your Creator on the day of judgment, what's the test by which God will judge you? What will God evaluate in you as He determines your final and eternal destination? We might expect Paul to say that God will judge us on whether or not we've accepted Christ, whether we've received, received the righteousness of God in Christ, the righteousness that Jesus won for us on the cross. Right? That's, that's maybe what we would want, Jesus, what, want Paul to say here. No doubt he believed that. But instead, Paul says in verse 6 of Romans 2, 
God will repay each one according to his works. That's what the text says. To those who persevere in good works, Paul says, God will give eternal life. But to those who work what is evil, God will give eternal wrath. Paul agrees with Jesus in John 5. God's final judgment is according to works. So are Jesus and Paul denying that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works, lest any man should boast? Are they undermining that doctrine? Do they agree with the Roman Catholics that salvation is by faith plus works? Has Paul already forgotten what he wrote back in Romans 1, 16 and 17, where he adamantly taught that salvation is by faith alone, from start to finish, from faith to faith, he says. Well, some have used this passage and Jesus' words in John 5 to support some kind of justification on the basis of what we do, salvation by works. But Jesus and Paul are making a very different point here. They're not saying that that God's judgment of believers on the final day will be on the basis of, on the foundation of good works, They're saying that God's judgment of believers, in particular, will be in agreement with, in line with, in accordance with the good works that the Holy Spirit worked in them, in believers, when they were on this earth. Now, there's a sense in which the judgment of unbelievers is on the basis of, on the foundation of their works, because that's the only thing they have. But, but the judgment of believers is not on the basis of, but in accordance with works. So there's a big difference there between judgment that is on the basis of works and judgment that is in accordance with works. If, if, jo- if God were to judge us on the basis of our good works, no one would be saved because no one has enough good works to redeem himself. Nevertheless, God will judge in accordance with our works. On judgment day, your works will be put forward as evidence that you did, in fact, have saving faith in Jesus. Or if you're not saved, your works will be be put forward as evidence that you did not possess a living, saving faith in Jesus. Our passage today starts in verse 6 of Romans 2, but it's closely connected to verse 5. In verse 5, Paul said, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, he's talking to the religious types, particularly the Jewish religious types. He says, you store up for yourself wrath on the day of the wrath, revelation, and righteous judgment of God. The righteous judgment of God is coming. It's coming for every human soul. And in verses 6 to 11, Paul goes on to explain the nature of God's righteous judgment at the return of Christ. So, so why does he need to go into this? Why does Paul need to elaborate on God's judgment according to works on the final day? It's in this context because the religious types, especially the Jews, the chosen people of God, were under the impression that God would show favoritism toward them on judgment day. It's well documented that the Jews of Jesus' day believed that God was going to be partial toward them on the day of judgment because they were the chosen people of God and they were members of this covenant community. 
And so they could get away with more bad works. They had to do more bad works to get the same judgment as the Gentiles for doing the same works. We religious people are always in danger. Always in danger of thinking that God's going to be merciful to us on judgment day because we're here. Because we're church members. Because we've been baptized or because we subscribe to a superior theology, or because we know our Bibles, or because we tend to do things not only better than the world, but also perhaps even better than most other Christians. Surely God will show partiality toward me because I am a member of his covenant. The Jews were particularly tempted to think this way because, as Paul says later in Romans 9, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. But when God repays you according to what you have done in this life, he will do so impartially. There will be no special favoritism for those who are associated with these things, with the right people or who are ultra-religious. In fact, the only thing being a Jew will earn you, Paul says, is a place at the front of the judgment line on the Jew first, which could be good or bad. To whom much is given, much is required. So if anything, we religious folk will face a stricter judgment because we've been given more light, more revelation, more opportunity. Children, children of the covenant, young people, God won't give you special treatment on Judgment Day just because you grew up in a Christian home or attended church regularly with your family where you heard the gospel and partook of the Lord's Supper every week. He won't show you special favoritism. Rather, he will hold you to an even higher standard based on the fact that he gave you more. To whom much is given, much is required. Now, if you look at your handout, right under the translation, you'll see that our passage is structured chiastically, chiastically. And do you see the ABCCBA pattern there? That's a chiasm or chiasmus, which is very, a very common rhetorical device in the whole Bible. It gets used regularly in both Testaments. And so as you can see in this one, the two A's correspond, the two B's correspond, and the two C's correspond to each other. In other words, Paul's saying very similar things in both A's, very similar things in both B's, and very similar things in both C's. The two A's are about God's judgment on everyone. The two B's are about God's rewards, reward to believers. And then the two C's are about God's wrath on unbelievers. Now, often in a chiasmus, the author is, is wanting to draw the reader's attention to the middle of the chiasmus. All right, that, that would be the two C's. In this case, though, the main point of the passage is found on the outer edges of the chiasmus in the two A's, the two letter, letters A. Paul's emphasis is on God's universal and impartial judgment of everyone. 
So Paul's message in these six verses is that on the final day, God will impartially judge every person according to their works. Therefore, you must persevere in good works. Now, for the visual learner, I found a helpful diagram. I didn't create that. I, I put it in there, though, and right below the chiasmus. If you want to know how it relates to the chiasmus, the, the words in the middle, in the circle, or in the oval, correspond to the two A's. The words in the, the boxes on the right, where it says good, correspond to the two B's. And then the, the words in the two boxes on the left, where it says evil, correspond to the two C's. Eventually, we need to come back around to our question about how this passage fits with Paul's teaching elsewhere that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works, apart from what we do. To get there, though, we need to understand what Paul is teaching here in this text and in this context. Paul isn't saying anything novel and anything new at all here. In fact, verse 6, you might have noticed, verse 6 is a direct quote from Psalm 62, the end of Psalm 62, which we read together. It's in the bulletin. It, it's also a quote from Proverbs 24, 12, which Bobby read earlier, right after the psalm. And I put verse 6 in small uppercase letters because it's a quote from the Old Testament. Now, following verse 6, Paul iterates and reiterates that there are two and only two destinations after death. Everyone's headed either to eternal life or eternal death and destruction, eternal wrath. Verse 7, eternal life to those who seek glory, honor, and immortality through steadfast endurance and good work. But anger and wrath to, the, to those who act out of selfish ambition and who disobey the truth but obey unrighteousness. Verse 9 there in your handout. There will be affliction and distress on every human soul who works what is evil, on the Jew first and also on the Greek. But there will be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who works what is good, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Paul doesn't only tell us about the two destinations. He also tells us about the two paths to these two destinations. They're two very different paths. The first path, and, and every one of us, is every person in creation is on one of these two paths. Every one of us, every one of you is on one of these two paths. The first path is the path of the person who works what is good and continues in good work with steadfast endurance. An important word there, steadfast endurance. One word in Greek, steadfast endurance. This is the person who is walking in obedience and growing in godliness. He's killing sin and bearing fruit and doing good works. He's not perfect. Being on the right path, the path to eternal life, is not about perfection. It's about direction. It's not about perfection. It's about overall direction. I like to say it's about your trajectory. Every, either your trajectory is up and to the right or down and to the left. For you guys. Either you're moving upward and inward toward God, or you're moving downward and outward away from God. Those are the two paths. Verse 7 says that the saved person is seeking, seeking eternal life. 
He's pursuing God. His direction is Godward. Everyone is heading in a direction. Where are you headed? Are you seeking the Lord? Or are you trying to find glory, honor, immortality, and peace in this world and the things that were created? The first path ends in eternal life. It culminates in glory, honor, immortality, and peace. And those four words are important. Those are the four words Paul uses in verse 7 and verse 10, the, the, the two B's in the chiasmus. Glory, honor, immortality, and peace. Glory and honor get mentioned twice, you'll notice. Those four words summarize eternal life. Glory has to do with the glory God will share with us when he raises us from the dead at the return of Christ so that we become like Jesus. On Judgment Day, believers will be transformed into the image of God's Son so that God's glory is reflected even in our resurrection bodies. Are you looking forward to that? On that day, we'll also receive honor, similar, similar uh, denotation here. He's getting at a similar thing when he says honor. But he uses the word honor because it, it, it's in contrast to what the unbeliever will experience. He will be experiencing disgrace, condemnation. And we'll become immortal. Immortality, he says. And that means we'll be unable to die, unable to sin, and totally free from all the suffering that we experience in this life, in this world, in this old creation, in our mortal bodies. And we'll, be, and we'll enjoy perfect peace. Peace is the fourth word. A profound, never before experienced, never before imagined peace of heart and mind as we enjoy God's presence fully and forever. Are you looking forward to this? Is this, is this your hope? Does your life indicate that you are on the path to glory, honor, immortality, and peace? Or does it indicate that you're on the other path? The second path is the path of the person who works what is evil, to use Paul's language. This is the person who's walking in disobedience. Paul says in verse 8 that this person disobeys the truth and obeys unrighteousness. He's not killing sin. Sin is killing him. The only fruit he produces is bad fruit. He's headed in the wrong direction. He's on the path that ends in eternal death and destruction, a path that culminates in anger, wrath, affliction, and distress. Those are the four words that Paul uses in verses 8 and 9, the two C's in your chiasmus. Anger, wrath, affliction, distress. Those four words leave a very different impression than the other set of four words, don't they? Anger, wrath, affliction, and distress summarize eternal death, eternal hell, eternal separation from God, eternal suffering. On Judgment Day, unbelievers will experience more of God's anger and wrath than they ever imagined possible. They'll be afflicted and distressed forever because in this life they refuse to turn from their sins, from their idols, and walk with God in faith and obedience. One of the characteristics of those on the path that 
on, on the wrong path is, is the characteristic of self-seeking. In verse 8, Paul says that they act out of selfish ambition. This is the opposite of the first and second greatest commandments. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. The path to eternal life, the good path, is God-focused and others-focused. The path to hell is self-focused, self-centered. To act out of selfish ambition is to flirt with hell. I said before that being on the path to eternal life is not about being perfect or sinless. It's, about perfect. it's, it's not about perfection. It's about walking in a certain direction. It's about being committed to a Godward direction, Godward trajectory, even when sin pulls you off the path temporarily. A wonderful illustration of this is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which a few of us read together a year or so ago. The main character's name is Christian because he is a true believer on his way to the celestial city, which represents heaven, eternal life. Now, there are some who want Christian to get off the straight and narrow path to eternal life. Sometimes Christian wavers and wanders off. At one point, he leaves the straight and narrow and takes a smoother, easier path called Bypath Meadow, which... You know, where he ends up being captured by a giant and put into Doubting Castle. But Christian never loses, he never loses his steadfast endurance. Sin never becomes his master, his complete master. He always persists until he gets back on the straight and narrow path to eternal life. His overall direction is always Godward. It's always heavenward. His sin never takes him completely off course. The life of the Christian, you see, is a life characterized by seeking eternal life and working what is good. The overall movement of the Christian life is inward and upward toward the throne of God. That may not be obvious if you take one tiny slice of that life, but when you look at the whole life, you see the trajectory, the movement, the direction. We see another picture of this in Psalm 1, which also talks about two different paths to two different destinations. The path of the righteous person in Psalm 1 leads to life and blessing, while the path of the unrighteous person leads to death and destruction. Listen to all these actions that characterize the righteous person in Psalm 1. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the path of the sinners. He doesn't sit with scoffers. He delights in God's law. He meditates on God's law day and night. The righteous man is known by his works of righteousness. He's known by his fruit. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. The other path is the one walked on by workers of wickedness. 
The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that, like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the path of the righteous, but the path of the wicked will perish. The path of those who do righteousness, the Lord knows, but the path of those who do wickedness, uh, did I say righteousness the first time? Wickedness, it will perish. So there's two paths, those who do righteousness, those who do wickedness. Psalm 1 is about two different paths, two different overall directions, two different trajectories which lead to two different destinations. Everyone, every person from conception onward is on one of those two paths. And your works, your fruit, your actions indicate which trajectory you're on, which destination you're headed toward. Like David and Jesus... Paul is saying that works matter. Not as the basis of salvation, but as evidence that you have the kind of faith that saves. Salvation is by faith alone apart from works. Paul's clear about that in many places. A good example is, of his clarity is in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where he writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Very clearly, it's not a result of works, not based on works. That's not the foundation of your salvation. But then in the very next verse, he goes on to say that good works are necessary. They're a necessary outcome of salvation. So good works, salvation doesn't result from good works, but good works result from salvation. Verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're new creations in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's no such thing as a saved person who doesn't walk in good works. When God saves a person, the result of that salvation is always fruitfulness. Bobby read from Romans 8 in the assurance of pardon. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? There's no condemnation because we're in we're in union with Christ. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit? So to be in Christ is to be saved, and to be in Christ is to walk according to the Spirit. That's what happens to people who are saved. When God causes someone to be born again, He also causes that person to be led by the Spirit. The new birth is always followed by obedience. A good confession is always followed by by good works. And there's no exception to that rule. There's, there's never been one exception to that rule. There never will be one exception to that rule. A good confession is always followed by good works. When God saves, he also sanctifies. 
When you experience the saving grace of God, you will inevitably experience growth in godliness. And because there are no exceptions, on judgment day, your works will tell all. They will indicate the path that you were on in this life. The works that you did and didn't do during this mortal life, the deeds that you did or didn't do in this mortal body will say everything that needs to be said. Commentator Leon Morris writes, Works are important. They are the outward expression of what the person is deep down. In the believer, they are the expression of faith. In the unbeliever, they are the expression of unbelief. Good works don't earn salvation, but they are essential evidence that you are on the path to glory, honor, immortality, and peace. You'll be judged in accordance with your works one day. And on that day, your works will reveal to God whether your faith in Christ was genuine. God sees all. So if your Christianity is a sham, if it's an empty confession, a dead faith, as James calls it, without works, then your masquerade will be exposed on Judgment Day. At the bottom of your handout, I put some verses that you can look up today or later this week to read about the final judgment according to works as it applies to the saved and the unsaved. We don't have time to go through all those, but it would be a good study. It's not quite comprehensive, but it gets, it gets close. Don't think you can get into the celestial city without a life of holiness. Hebrews 2.14, uh, 12.14 rather, says that without personal holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now your holiness doesn't merit or earn your entrance into heaven. That's not what any of the authors of the Bible are saying. But no one gets into heaven without personal holiness, the personal holiness that flows from saving faith in Jesus. Again, not sinlessness, but genuine growth in holiness. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the, the scribes and Pharisees were more religious than probably every one of us in this room, right? At least on the outside, external religion. But their hearts, by and large, were not regenerated. They had not experienced the new birth. They were not saved. Naturally, then, they worked what is evil instead of working what is good. You see, a heavy dose of religion is the worst thing you could give to someone who isn't born again. Apart from the new birth, apart from saving faith in Christ, religion can only produce self-righteous hypocrisy. That's the only thing that's going to come of that. It's foolish to think that you will get into heaven without good works, without holiness, just because you were baptized or because you said a prayer or because you came to the front of the church and confessed faith in Jesus. Those are all good things to do. 
But Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So a confession, Lord, Lord, is not enough if, you're not, if it's not matched with doing the will of the Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Mighty works. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, the good works God is looking for are the ones that flow from a changed heart. Otherwise, a work that looks a lot like somebody a, a good work is a work of lawlessness. It's not a work that pleases God because it's not flowing from faith, from a changed heart. Genuine conversion means that God has taken out your heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. And if the direction of your life is not to work what is good out of love for God, you need to repent of your sins and turn to Jesus for the salvation that is full and free in him. Children, I want to address you again. I'm talking to, to the young people. Those of you who are teenagers are down, you know, even the single-digit guys and gals. Make sure you hear what the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage. Make sure you hear what Paul is saying to all of us, but, but maybe especially to those of you who were born in a Christian family, raised in the church. Those of you who come to church every week. You've been given much, and so you especially need to heed Paul's instruction. Your temptation, children, will be to coast, to rest on your laurels, to, to just assume that you're good because you're in this environment, it, to take your salvation in Christ for granted, to presume upon it. You'll be tempted to think that you're good, right? You're good with God just because you're in this community, You've been baptized, right? You've, every, every week you get to come to the Lord's table to eat with Jesus, to eat with his people. You get to hear God's word, sing God's word, to pray God's word. You experience worship that is biblical and rich. Your parents read the scriptures to you in your home. They teach you to walk in the ways of the Lord. And so you do look different from the world in many ways. They talk to you about the faith. The promises and blessings and truths of the covenant are yours. They've been given to you. You've memorized portions of scripture. You know a lot of our songs, our hymns and spiritual songs and psalms by heart. To borrow Paul's language from Romans 9, to you belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the giving of the scriptures, the worship, and the promises. All of these spiritual realities are swirling around you all the time, day in, day out, week in, week out, Sunday in, Sunday out. And so, and, and, and this is no doubt a benefit to you 
children. It's a wonderful blessing. You've been given very, very much indeed. But you see, all of these gospel blessings are of no good to you. Listen, children, all of these gospel blessings are of no good to you unless you unless they land in your heart. Unless they land in your heart and stay planted there. If the scriptures and songs and prayers and confessions and bread and wine and family worship are just swirling around you, but they never land on a soft, receptive heart, they do you no eternal good. The gospel must be received by all of us. The gospel must be received in your hearts. It must be received in your heart the way good soil receives a seed, right? You ever planted a garden, planted seeds? You got to have good soil. When God's word lands in the soil of your heart, it must grow roots and spring up and bear much fruit. James 1 says, humbly accept the word planted in you. Some of you have had the word planted in you from from infancy. Some of us from later in life on. Humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do and their actions. I've seen a lot of covenant children baptized in my life. Sadly, not all of them have continued in the faith. Some, some of them turn out to be like the rocky soil in the parable of the sower. The seed that fell on the rocky soil sprang up. It looked a lot like the other plants springing up, but eventually it withered. It withered away because there was no moisture. It lacked moisture. Jesus says that those on the rocky soil are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They have faith for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Luke 8, 13. Some of the covenant children I've seen baptized turn out to be like the thorn-infested soil. This is no better. The seed that fell, this is, this is true of adults I've seen baptized too, by the way. The seed that fell among the thorns, Jesus says, stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the worries, riches, and pleasures of life, and they never mature. Children and adults, but, but children, I'm talking to you right now. I want you to be like the good soil, the final soil in that parable, which grew and yielded a crop. I want you to be like the the rich soil in that parable. 
it produced a hundredfold, Jesus says, a hundred times more than it was sown. Luke 8, 15, the seed on the good soil stands for those who, hearing the word, hold it fast with an honest and good heart and bear fruit by means of steadfast endurance. Steadfast endurance, it says. Because God will impartially judge you according to your works, you must hold fast to the word with an honest and good heart. And you must bear fruit by means of steadfast endurance. That, that phrase, steadfast endurance, at the end of Luke 8.15 in that parable, is, the, is one word, and it's the same exact word that Paul uses in our passage today. In Romans 2.7, where he says that God will give eternal life to those who seek glory, honor, and immortality through steadfast endurance and good work. Fellow believers, set, set your sights on eternity. Seek eternal life with steadfast endurance, with perseverance, with continuance in the faith. Live in the hope of hearing on the final day, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master, your Lord. How would you have lived differently last week or last month or last year if you had been thinking regularly about the day when you will stand before the judgment seat of God? Would you have spent your time differently? Would you have watched your words better? Would you have lived your life less for yourself and more for God and others. If God promises eternal rewards for those who work what is good, it's foolish for us to live only or primarily for this short life. Live to hear, well done. Live to hear, well done, from the one who knows your heart better than you do, and who sees everything you think, say, and do. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your mercy in Jesus. We thank you that you have rescued us from our enslavement to sin and death. You have rescued us from the grip of the devil. And you have given us eternal life even now as we walk with Jesus and trust in him and obey him. Help us from this day forward to live more and more like those who have been saved. Give us, by your spirit working through us, by your grace alone, give us good works. Produce fruit in us by your power that works in us and through us to accomplish your will. We need this. We depend on you not just to save us. We depend on you to sanctify us, to give us that growth in godliness and in holiness without which no one will see you. And so work that in us. 
until the very end. Give us steadfast endurance in Jesus, we pray for his sake. Amen.